How many of you are glad to be here today? Say amen. When you think about uh, what has gone on for about a year now, and you think about uh, people who have suffered greatly, and not just from actually having COVID, but what about people's businesses? Some of you own businesses, and maybe your business has suffered. Maybe there have been layoffs at your job. Maybe there have been uh, family members that couldn't travel to see you over the holidays, things like that. We have had a lot of things that have hit a lot of people and hit them hard during this past year. We've had a change in government and we've had uh, riots in the streets and even at the Capitol. We've had a lot of different things happen that just kind of throw us off because it's not really the way we're used to living. And uh, now we see a lot of things that we wonder, will they ever go back to the way they were before? And uh, we have questions about things. We were talking in our Sunday school class today about some of the things with COVID they're worried about now are the long-term effects. We heard about, uh, Lisa Williams was telling us about a a 19-year-old girl that got COVID and all four valves in her heart are leaking. She's probably looking at a heart transplant now. And she came through COVID fine, they thought. Things like that. They're kind of unsettling. And we wonder, uh, where's the world heading? What is life going to be like? I mean, if it changed this fast... If things in our culture were this fragile, think about it. It's kind of unsettling, isn't it? If that's all you think about. But one of the reasons we are here this morning is not just tradition. It's because we sang about it earlier. We believe. And I want you to think about what you believe this morning. What you believe. And then the question is going to be this. How does that impact the way you face unwanted change in life and in society? And I think it's at that point you either decide you're going to keep believing or you're giving up. Do you know anybody who's given up? I know some people who have kind of given up. At least it seems that way. Do you know anybody who's just kind of hanging by a thread? Do you know somebody who's just worn out and discouraged? Do you know somebody who says, life and everything I had hoped for, everything I believed in, has not gone the way I thought it was going to go? Do you know anybody like that? It might be you. And if it is you, I'm so glad you're watching if it is you, I'm so glad you're sitting in a chair this morning because today we are here to say we believe God is in control, Jesus is Lord, all things, even what you're going through, work together for good because you love God and you're the called according to His purpose. And the steps of the righteous are ordered of God. You're not where you are by accident or by any failure of God to control your life. And the God who saved you is the God who walks with you 
through the valley that you're walking in or your loved ones are walking in right now. Which makes this prayer time extremely, extremely important. This is not just a get it over with and get us out of here. This is where we touch and connect with the power that controls the universe. The power that controls the government. The power that controls coronavirus. The power that controls the economy. Think about it. The power that heals our damaged, wounded souls. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your soul. For your soul. Only Jesus, only Jesus can do that. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to pray Pray for yourself if you need to. That's okay. Pray for someone that you know who's on the verge of giving up. Pray for someone who is sick. Dr. Hogan is not here today. He is in St. Anthony Hospital. And uh, he's got a bad gallbladder and some other things that they are looking into. Please pray for him and his family. Pray for people that we've talked about before. And Father, as we think about all of this, we come to you, the people that should be the most hope-filled people on the planet, and yet we come to you saying today, Oh Lord, we need you to fill us with hope, to renew our hope. That kind of hope, the Bible says, that doesn't disappoint. Because sometimes we find ourselves disappointed, and when we do... That's the Holy Spirit waving a red flag. We've put our hope in the wrong things. We put our hope in the wrong place. We put our hope in the wrong person. And we probably didn't mean to. And we probably didn't realize that we did it. Forgive us, Lord. And fill us with the hope that is found in Christ. We do pray you would heal people. We ask you to continue to work in Craig Maggot's life, and we continue to, and continue to work in Tanya Oldham's life, of course. And we pray for Dr. Hogan. We pray that he would feel the presence of the Lord and the healing power of the Lord now and pray that his surgery goes well. There are a lot of other people facing a lot of other things, and we ask you to personally touch each one of their lives so that they know you care about them and you love them. Touch families, touch marriages, touch our children, and we pray, Lord, for prodigals to come home and pray that your grace, your grace would do something in us even now that would cause us to stand up and cause us to be counted and cause us to walk worthy of the Lord, as the Bible says. So, Lord, we look to you today, and we don't have any other place to look. Forgive us when we try, and help us to realize that looking at you is not just the last resort. It's the ultimate. Fill us with faith as we believe and trust in you and rest in you. And we pray this, Lord, because we know you care. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Take your Bibles this morning. 
Let's cover something else controversial. We talked about slavery last week. Let's talk about capital punishment today. Controversial among a lot of people and in a lot of lives because this is something that some people say seems to be, well, backwards from Jesus. It seems as though maybe uh, the law of love and God is love and all of those kind of things don't seem to fit with this. In fact, someone asked me not too long ago, why is it all of you people who are so anti-abortion are so excited about killing criminals? And I said, well, I don't know that we're excited about it, but we do believe in it. And I said, let me ask you the same question in a different way. Why is it that all of you that seem to be so excited about killing babies are so reticent to kill a murderer? And, you know, it kind of is a dilemma. This is what it means to be human. Nothing seems to make sense when we come up with it. That's why we've always got to turn to God, and we've got to look at things God's way. We're going to be looking in Exodus in the uh, 21st chapter, and we're going to look uh, initially at verses 12 through 15. Now, remember, this is a a nation that's very loosely regarded as a, a nation. This is the formation of the nation and how they are going to uh, survive. This is God giving them his law, his rules. And this is not just about their personal righteousness. This is God who cares about righteousness permeating the society. Uh, In the New Testament, we think of it like this. We are salt and we are light. In other words... Our lives, our morality, our faith is supposed to have an impact on the very society in which we live. Well, that's what he is saying here. That what is going on here in these commandments, particularly commandment 5, commandment 6, and commandment 8, the one about the parents, the one about uh, murder, and the one about uh, stealing, uh, these things are supposed to have some type of practical aspect in life. And God's way that he says in dealing with this is that violators of a certain type, keep that in mind, of a certain type of these commandments are to be put out of society permanently through capital punishment. Now he does kind of put some restrictions on it. We'll see that. And uh, it's interesting to uh, look and see how they function. They didn't have a police force. They didn't have any penitentiaries. Uh, You would never be in ancient Israel riding your donkey along and see a sign that said hitchhikers might be inmates because penitentiaries didn't exist then. Penitentiaries kind of come, um, as I understand it, as much out of the Quaker type of thinking than anything because penitentiary has the word penitent in it and someone who is penitent is someone who has committed a crime or a sin they thought about it they've reflected on it and they've changed their mind about it they're remorseful for it and I think if you've ever had any experience with our modern penitentiary uh, uh, system there's not much penitence coming out of that A lot of times people that go in there actually come out hardened and more uh, uh, against 
doing what's right and the law. My dad was in that for 14 years as a prison chaplain. And uh, it's amazing how many of those guys, he said, you could tell they're coming up for parole. They're making plans what they're going to do when they're out. And then they're also making plans to return to the prison because they know eventually that's where they're going to end up. Now, thank God that's not everybody, and I don't mean to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Thank God for those who do get things right and do come out and become a productive member of society. But uh, there's a lot of the other that goes on. And it's interesting that we put so much stock in putting people in a, a prison, in a penitentiary, and yet the Bible never does. The Bible has a different way of looking at crime and punishment and society and all of that. And I think a lot of this boils down to the fact of not so much what we do, but the fact that our society is sick in the way that we think. And if you think about the Ten Commandments, and if you think about the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me, we have so corrupted that to where any old God will do and you can worship any way you want and whatever you decide is true is true. And when you read those first four commandments particularly, you'll find out it's not. There's only one true and living God and there's really only one way that we can worship Him. And then society flows out of that with the authority of the family honoring father and mother and then going on down through those remaining commandments. And it's very important. We talk about law and order and uh, we don't seem to have any problem coming up with laws but we do seem to have a lot of problems with getting the order part right. People don't think right and they think they can get away with things and they think they can do and ought to be able to do whatever they want. And a lot of that flows out of the fact that they've been taught all of their lives they're nothing more than an animal and there is no ultimate authority. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's not even a God. You're just a mutation, you're a mistake, you're an animal and then we wonder why they live like animals. And so God is giving order to his people, order to this nation. And uh, these are people that have not been in charge of anything. They've been slaves. Decisions have been made for them. They didn't make any decisions. These are the people that had people ruling over them. And uh, they've never ruled over anything or anyone. They've never made a judgment or anything like that. They've been slaves. So now they've got to learn how to think like free people and how to order their lives and to order their society. And what God says in these verses that we're going to read, especially later on, are a little bit shocking to us. And they're the kind of thing, and I understand it, you read it and you kind of recoil from it. But this is God's inerrant, infallible word, and we need to understand it because this is the way things work. God knows how things work. So... I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to Exodus 21 and let's begin reading in verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, in other words, it just happened, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with, big word here, 
an important word here, premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. We might put the word in there, you shall take him even from my altar that he may die. We'll explain that in a little bit. Well, number one, let's just talk about the principle that's being laid out here. And here's the principle. Here is what God said. God says that if there is someone who strikes a man so that he dies, surely he shall be put to death. That's just the principle. And God had not said that uh, just this one time. It had been said before. Moses had written it down before in Genesis chapter 9. This takes place after um, Noah gets off of the ark. And it says, And uh, for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now some people say capital punishment, well it doesn't do any good. I mean, we've had capital punishment from the beginning of our nation. And uh, our murder rate is still much higher than it is in some parts of the world. It's not a deterrent. Some of them say that um, it's more uh, expensive to execute somebody than it is to keep them in prison. I'm not sure where they get their figures on those kind of things. Uh, some people say it makes our society more violent. And some people say that Jesus and the New Testament overturn any type of death penalty. And we'll look at that in just a minute. Now, I want you to think about what God has said in Exodus 21 and in Genesis 9. And I want you to notice that when God instituted the death penalty in Genesis, he never said that uh, a person who murders someone else shall die because it will be a deterrent to someone else doing it. It may or it may not. Some people are so hot-headed, they're just so angry, they don't really care at that moment what happens to them. They don't think about what's going to happen to them. They just don't care. They do what they're going to do. The thing, though, that God does appeal to in the Genesis 9 passage, it ends up in saying, for God made man in his own image. The reason that God says that human life is to be treated differently than other life, that he tells us we are not to kill, literally the commandment says, you shall not murder. And the reason that God exacts a high penalty on all of that is so that he can put it in the mind of people and in the mind of cultures and societies that there's something different and something special about human life because we are created by God, not only by God, but in the image of God. Now, obviously, being fallen creatures, we don't do a very good job of showing the image of God. The mirror is broken. The reflection is messed up. But it is still there whether the people are lost or whether they are saved. In the New Testament, it even talks about the way that we treat other people. Uh, 
James says that with the same mouth, with the same tongue, we bless God and then we curse men who are made in the image and uh, the likeness of God. It doesn't matter where you go, human beings are made in the likeness of God, the image of God. It doesn't matter whether they're good or bad, whether they're criminal or straight. It doesn't matter anything about them at all. Everyone is made in the image of God, and therefore human life is sacred, whether it is in the womb or whether it is walking the streets, whatever it may be, it is sacred unto God. God loves humanity, and God protects and preserves humanity and one of the way he's, ways he does it is by emphasizing the importance of human life even through all of this simply because we are made in the image of God and therefore God has instituted capital punishment for murder, for premeditated murder. Now you'll notice here that he does not say that uh, we've already mentioned this, that it'll be a deterrent. It may or may not. He doesn't say anything else about you shall only um, execute poor people or execute people of a certain minority race or anything like that. This is supposed to be across the board, rich or poor. This is supposed to be whatever your ethnicity might be. This is supposed to happen whether your family has influence or whether they don't. This is supposed to be something that is uh, a universal principle for everyone else. And it also is to get rid of the idea of just simply having vengeance. Back in the days when Moses wrote this, you have to remember Israel was largely a tribal society. What were the tribes in Israel? Well, they were families. Everybody, for example, in the tribe of Judah had a common ancestor in Judah. They were all related, distantly related, but they were all related. And the tribes tended to look more favorably upon their tribe. Now, if you're from the tribe of Dan and you do something wrong, well, then the tribe of Judah, uh, boy, they want to come after you and get vengeance on you. However, if you were from the tribe of Judah, well, maybe we could kind of overlook it. And God is saying, I want my law to be enforced regardless of who you are or where you came from or who you are related to. Boy, that would be nice, wouldn't it? To have a justice system that literally was with liberty and justice for all, regardless of who you are or who you think you are. Now, back in the days of uh, the writing here, but it also comes into today in certain parts of the world, there are people, um, Arabs are really big on this, they believe that if you're great, 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 a lost count of uh, grandfather killed their great, 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 whatever grandfather, then all the way down generation after generation, even to today, they would say, you are honor bound to hate that person that is the descendant of the one that killed your ancestor. And so this idea of blood guilt, a missionary from Israel uh, sat down and talked to me one time about some things like that. And he said that the Muslim religion and the Arab culture is a culture of guilt. You can never get rid of your guilt. I am honor bound and my family is honor bound to take vengeance on your family from this point on. Generation after generation after generation after generation. 
you know what this is designed to do, what God said? Let's just stop it now. Let's take care of it now and stop it now. This is not about vengeance. This is not about getting revenge on anybody. This is not about family honor killings or anything like that. This is, boy, that's annoying, isn't it? This is uh, supposed to be something that is taken care of and taken care of for this particular thing for premeditated murder. And so this appeals to the sanctity of life and, of course, unto the love of God for us and our society. Number two, I want you to notice here that when we get to verse 13, that there is a provision for mercy. Well, what do you do if you didn't intend to kill somebody? In our culture, we call it manslaughter, don't we? What do we do in that? Do we just execute anybody? Well, no, not at all. The other guy may have started it. The other guy may have actually been out to murder you and you ended up killing him instead in self-defense or something like that. Well, what do you do? What do you do in that situation? What do you do in case of an accidental killing or something like that? And the Bible says that in that case, there's not to be execution, but he said, I am going to show you a place where you might flee. A place where you might run banishment to another place. Well, that would preserve your life and that would get you to where you were um, not uh, having to run from or be afraid of vengeful relatives as they uh, would come after you or try to kill you or trick you or anything like that. This is a kind of a protective and merciful thing. And... uh, In some ways, it might be like going to prison because you're away from home, you're away from family, away from your business, away from friends, having to make your way in a new place. And um, yet, uh, this is something, though, that the Lord provided so that you would not be killed and you could live your life until the high priest dies or the year of jubilee, things like that. The term would certainly end. And these are called... You can read about these uh, cities of refuge in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy chapter 19. Places where you could flee if the killing was unintentional, if it was an accidental type thing, and uh, there was uh, some protection that needed to be given. It was a provision of mercy. And then thirdly, notice here there's a protection against abuse. Well, if you have something like that, a provision... Will people not try to abuse it? And the answer is, of course they would. And God said if it was premeditated that you were to take them even from my altar. Even from my altar. We're going to do something else here. Um, When you think about that, what does it mean to take them even from my altar? Well, when you go to the book of, I believe it's 2 Kings, uh, 1 Kings, uh, sorry, when Solomon takes over, There were two things that happened where it talks about somebody fleeing to the tabernacle and holding on to the horns of the altar. If this were the altar of sacrifice, there would be four things on each corner that look like horns. And somebody might come up and they grab a hold of the horns of the altar and they do that as a way of trying to protect themselves like sanctuary. 
you have seen some people that go to a Catholic church, for example, and uh, all they do is they go in there and they say, nobody can touch me. I claim sanctuary for all of this. And uh, that's what the horns of the altar were. Well, they would hold on to that thinking that I'm pleading my case. And as I'm pleading my case, no one will kill me here. Well, the Bible says, if you were a premeditated murderer, even if you are in the temple, and even if you were holding on to the horns of the altar, you were still supposed to be executed. That's how strong God said. And the, everything hinges upon that term premeditation. Did you plan it? Did you determine it? Did you know what you were doing? Did you do it intentionally is uh, the idea here. And to a large degree, we follow that today. The idea of premeditated murder is uh, what we really look for in terms of the death penalty. Even if you take him from my altar. There, that ought to take care of that. And um, that happened, Second King, uh, 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 50, with uh, one of David's sons, Adonijah. He tried to take advantage of David's sickness and impending death and declare himself king, even though Solomon was supposed to be the king. And when it was officially declared that Solomon was king, Adonijah ran to the tabernacle and he uh, grabbed the horns of the altar. And Solomon was merciful and said, look, you're not going to die for your treason if you just promise not to cause any more trouble. And in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, Joab, the commander of David's army, had aligned with Adonijah, and uh, he was actually executed there at uh, the altar, but not for his treason, for murdering two other people that were uh, innocent. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, the question, some people think that this type of thing just counteracts the love of God. How could a loving God do this? And some people even say that the New Testament overturns the death penalty. Well, I want you to think about Romans chapter 13, verse 4. And as Paul writes about the government, he says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. In my mind, that would be a reference to capital punishment, that the New Testament affirms the government's right to execute criminals just as the Old Testament does. In John chapter 8, verse 7, some people use this, and uh, there was a woman that was caught in adultery. She was brought before Jesus. Remember that? And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They said, our law says she ought to be stoned. Well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, that would mean nobody would be able to do that. Now, there are two things I think you need to know in order to understand that passage. That uh, maybe, maybe three things or who knows how many we'll have when we get through with this. They pop into my mind. Uh, first of all, where was the man? You remember the Bible says very specifically, this woman was not accused, caught. 
So we've got a miscarriage of justice as we just start this whole thing. It, it, you know, it takes two, doesn't it? And so this particular woman is brought and she's going to be stoned. Where was the man? And I think Jesus was stepping up more for the idea that, you know, why are you picking on only the woman when the man was involved too? I think the other thing too is when Jesus said, let him who is without sin, I think he's talking about the sin of adultery. And I think it was much more common in those days than uh, anyone would like to admit. They wanted to keep it secret. What did Jesus write in the sand? I don't know. But maybe he wrote down the names and the partner that those men committed adultery with themselves. And they uh, all of a sudden had other things to do, other places to go. And, uh, you know, it ended the whole thing. Let him who is not guilty of this same thing you uh, cast the first stone. But the third thing that comes up in all of that is, did you notice this would have been a brilliant and a wonderful opportunity for him to speak against the death penalty, except in this case, he seems to be allowing it if he can just find a qualified person. He doesn't say no death penalty. He says, just don't be the sinner who throws the first stone. And... Um, Nowhere else in the Bible does it actually overthrow the government's right to execute criminals. But in this case, Jesus is going certainly after the self-righteous Pharisees who were every bit as guilty as she was, and yet they didn't want to deal with their own sin. They were always casting stones at other people. Now, when you get down to... Uh, chapter 21 in Exodus, and you read verses 15 through 17, um, a little troubling. It says, And one who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. That's tough. Verse 16, He who kidnaps a man and sells him if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Okay, that's a little easier to stomach and swallow. Kidnaps someone and you keep them as a slave or sell them as a slave. Death penalty, a little easier to swallow. Uh, we think about that. That would probably go a long way in ending sex trafficking, wouldn't it? Verse 17, and he who curses his father and mother shall surely be put to death. Well, these verses show us God intends to, at all costs, protect the integrity of the family. Our society and culture is guilty of violating that, aren't we? And also, he wants to stop kidnapping or, kidnapping or the slave trade. God takes a dim view of that type of thing. And all of this is done because... Well, if you think about it, you know a verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. I mean, I guess technically God for any sin could say, execute them, get rid of all of it. And it's only God's mercy that all of us are not dead and all of us are not in hell for eternity. And we have to understand that. But when it talks about 
don't curse your parents or you're going to die. Let's be clear, that's not applicable to a toddler. He would be talking about an adult child. And in the understanding of the Bible, if you were cursing your parents, you were threatening to kill them, you want them dead. And to strike a parent, an unthinkable thing, you think about an adult child, you think about the prodigal son who basically said to his dad, I wish you were dead and I had all of your money. Uh, this would be talking about somebody like that, cursing a parent or striking a parent. How many times have you heard about someone that comes back and they kill their parents for their money or something like that? This is the idea that is going on here. And God, uh, while it's offensive to our ears and we can't imagine it, yet this is what God says. And he does it for the integrity of the family and also to uh, stop profitability of kidnapping people and selling them into slavery or human trafficking. And then he reminds us that the wages of all sin is death. All of us are going to die because we are sinners. And some of us are going to go to heaven because we have had our sins forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ. And some of us are going to go to hell because we have tried to live on our own, do what we wanted to do, what pleased us, and we didn't think we needed a Savior. We're good enough the way that we are, and all of us are going to pay for our sins with the death penalty. And God as creator is the one who has instituted that. Now, what do we do with all of this? And it teaches us, as we get ready to wrap this up, God really does care about people. And he cares about our society. Does it matter who is running the government? Yes, he wants justice. He has shown the old man what is good and what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And we've rejected all three of those things. And we walk in arrogance and uh, we walk according to our own way. We're not as merciful as we think we are. There's a lot of vengeance. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of revenge. There's a lot of things that go on like that. And we don't really walk justly either because sometimes we execute justice against one person and then we choose not to based upon whether they're rich, whether they're poor, based upon the color of their skin, based upon what part of the country they come from, or sometimes even based upon whether they uh, ascribe to an elephant or a donkey, right? And we look at things and we go, what is going on? And God says, I want it to be consistent. And in this, not simply because it's practical or you find any benefit to it, but because men and women, boys and girls are created in the image of God and should be treated accordingly. And that's why the enemy attacks the doctrine of creation so much. If you can take away creation, if you can take away the image of God, the imago Dei, as theologians call it, if you can take away the sanctity of human life, if you can take away the purpose for our creation, if you can take away our ability to relate to God, 
Take all of that away. We're nothing more than just highly evolved animals. What does it matter if we kill our babies? What does it matter if we kill each other in the streets? What does it matter if there's no law or no order? It's all a part of the process to thin out the um, race, so to speak, and uh, thin out the herd, and it is just a part of the evolutionary cycle and something better will come along later on. Patently, patently, patently unbiblical and unworkable in a society that leads to nothing but chaos. But it also reminds us too that God in taking sin seriously, a God who would say this is the God who also tells us you as a sinner need to look to the cross. And God brought the death penalty against his innocent and beloved son so that he might be able to pardon you and to set you free. God, the Bible says, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible talks about he who did not spare his own son, how shall he not freely give us all things? This is a God who saves to the uttermost anyone who will admit their sin and come to the cross of Jesus and trust that the blood of Jesus paid for their sin in full, that God, it pleased, as Isaiah said, the father to bruise his own son. And why did he do it? He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to our own way. That's called sin. And Jesus came as the innocent one who knew no sin to take our sin upon himself. And for God the Father to execute his own son so that he could save people, sinners like you and like me. And praise God, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And there he sits until all of his enemies are made his footstool. Because one day... Jesus is going to return and he's going to return not in shame and not to be judged and not to be executed, but to rule and to reign as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you and I are going to get to reign with him. Oh, praise his name because of his amazing grace. And so through all of this we see in the Old Testament, we see the love of God, we see the value that God puts upon the crown of his creation, humanity. And we see the links that God would go to to protect us and that our society might be ordered and that sin might be restrained. And then because that'll never be good enough, he sends his own son and his own son suffers the fate of death on a cross executed on a cross, capital punishment against the Son of God so that you and I might have the freedom and the joy of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen to that? Have you trusted him? 
Have you trusted this God who loved you that much to, did, where he didn't spare his son, but his son was executed for your crimes, for your law-breaking, for your sin? Will you trust him today? And if you trust him today, let us know about it. We would love to rejoice with you. And if you're local, we would love to baptize you. And we would love to help disciple you. All you have to do is trust Christ and put your full faith in him and call upon the name of the Lord. And the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is good, good news. If you're interested in joining the church, we'll be happy to talk to you about that. But the church is open for people who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. We're a gathering of believers. Not the perfect, not the righteous, not the good, but believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Chad Trench can help you with that, and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. May we pray together? Father, as we think about all of this and all of the things that you say, things that are sometimes hard to receive and some things that are just as obvious as the nose on our face, and Father, we want to ask you to grant us understanding of your word, how it applies to our life and how we as Christians are to live and how we are to think. And help us come in line, not with what this world thinks, not with what sociologists think, not with what liberals think, but to fall in line with what the word of God has to say. Teach us and thank you, Lord, that you did not spare your own son from this very penalty of which he was not deserving. And thank you, Father, that he triumphed over all of that, and he did it for your glory and for our salvation. And we're eternally grateful. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.